I want you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke that uh, Roger has already read so beautifully to us this morning. Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. If you don't know this, the Gospel of Luke was written by a doctor for a very wealthy and influential friend. If you go back to verse 1 of chapter 1, it says this. It says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Okay, and those are things relating to the person and work of Jesus. Okay, so there is a a need for another verifiable account for a friend of Luke's. Verse 2, he says, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. That is, the account that's written and the accounts that are written of the life of Jesus are factual historical records. They're historical narratives about what actually happened. Verse 3 says, Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus. So that, and here's going to tell you, why was the Gospel of Luke written? So that you may know the certainty or the surety or the trustworthiness of the things that you have been taught. All right, so that the Gospel of Luke is written to give assurance, certainty of the validity, the trustworthiness of the accounts of the life of Jesus. And so what we're going to do this morning is step into the Gospel of Luke at the beginning of the story of Jesus. All right, the story of Jesus begins with the announcement of his birth. All right, in Matthew, you find the announcement is made to Joseph. And you find all of the, the turmoil that comes into the life of Joseph at the announcement of the birth of Christ. In the Gospel of Luke, you find the announcement coming to a young woman who lives in a city called Nazareth, or a town called Nazareth. Her name, as we all, I think this morning, probably know, is Mary. What I'd like to do is, is just work our way through this passage of Scripture, beginning in verse 26, the announcement what uh, in some context is called the Annunciation, the announcement of the coming of Jesus. All right, that's what Luke 1, 26 through 38 is about. Here's what I want you to do as you work through it. I want you to make some observations on this announcement that comes from God through an angel, Gabriel. I first want you to notice this. This bringing of Jesus to humanity and the announcement of it is initiated by who? It's initiated by God. He sends an angel to Mary, a supernatural witness, a supernatural self-disclosure of the intention and heart of God for man through His Son, Jesus Christ. So this work of the gospel, this work of Jesus, begins with God. Why is that necessary? And why is that important? Because all any move on our parts towards God is always in response to His gracious movement towards us. Right? We love Him because He first loved us. We move in His direction because He has extended to us an invitation. So there's this initiative of God coming to a place that is called Nazareth. Now, if you do a little bit of historical study on, this, on the town of Nazareth, what you're going to find is this. Historians estimate that the population of Nazareth at this time was between 50 to 200 people. It was a small city of no consequence that is never mentioned in the writings of the Old Testament. The only time you find it mentioned is in relationship to it being the place where Mary and Joseph lived 
and the place where Jesus Christ would be raised. All right, it is a place of relative consequence. In John chapter 1 and verse 46, when some of the early disciples are coming to Jesus, one of the disciples says, come and meet this man, Jesus of Nazareth. And the response of Nathanael is what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Meaning when God came, he came in humility. He came in a, in a phenomenal way to a most unsuspecting place. Because God is a God who specializes in what? These reversals. He seeks people no one else would seek. He uses people no one else would use. And he initiates a relationship with them by grace and sovereign self-disclosure. In that village of little consequence, he comes to a person of no standing whatsoever. A girl from a poor town, a peasant whose name is Mary. And in verse 27, you find out a few simple facts about Mary. Here's what God says. She is a virgin and she is pledged to be married. Okay, this idea of being pledged to be married, is, it's a little bit different than the way things operate for us today. This pledging, or what was called a betrothal, was an official ceremony where, where a man and a woman were given to one another. Okay, but they were not given together in the sense that they would live together, consummate their marriage physically, and have offspring. They were pledged for a period of testing, for a time of commitment and preparation for a marriage ceremony that would be the climax of this union, and they would come together. Okay, Mary's in the midst of this, what would be called a pledged or betrothal period. If you, the parallel to it would be an engagement, but at that time, this had to be broken legally. It was a binding contract to be pledged to a man to be married. There were assumptions that went along with that kind of a commitment, and that is that the individual would maintain their moral purity and integrity for the one that they were pledged to. Okay, so we find that she is pledged to be married. Now, here's the part of it that's awkward from our 21st century perspective. All right, the age at which betrothal would take place could range down to 12 years of age. Okay, upwards of 16 to 18. So it's estimated that Mary was probably between 14 and 16 years of age. A very young girl from a very small place of no consequence. But what the text gives us is this first hint or indication. Two times it's mentioned in the text. She was a virgin. Which is to say what? She had maintained moral sexual purity. She was a woman, a young lady of no consequence, but a young lady of moral purity. And in this sense, she becomes an example, I believe, for our generation. Verse 28 goes on to say this. It says, the angel says to her, Greetings, you are highly favored. Get down to verse 20 or verse 30. It says, you have found favor with God, Mary. You are highly favored. God has expressed upon you grace. And the idea of this word, if you go back and just look it up in the original, it's the word charis, the word that's for grace. Okay, it's a word that indicates the settled predisposition of God's favor upon a person. Mary, you have in the past been favored by God. That favor is right now being revealed to you. What does the angel want Mary to know? Mary, you are special in the eyes of God. God has a unique purpose for your life. And his favor, his sovereign disposition to love and use you 
has come. God could have chosen other people. He could have chosen a person of consequence, with a great background, with royal heritage. He could have. But it's not what he did. He came and chose a woman who did not deserve to be chose. And this is a humbling aspect of this, isn't it? The first lesson that we learn from this text is that Mary, and also we'll find about Joseph if you go over to the book of Matthew, they were people of moral excellence. They were examples of the kind of people that God desires to use. The kind of life that God seeks to employ. I think one of the things that's fascinating as you look at this text is Mary is being held up as someone who is honorable, who is excellent, not as an object of worship as is done often in the Catholic Church, but she is being held up as a phenomenal example of holiness and purity. Okay, not as an object of worship, but certainly one is to be called blessed. Why? Because she has lived a life that is unique. We live in a world that lies about young people, don't we? We live in a world that assumes that when young people are going through their junior high and senior high years, and perhaps even college years today, because adolescence has been expanded in our culture, the assumption is what? Well, you know, when you go through that phase, you're going to sow your wild oats. You're going to do all your stupid things. Okay, what's the assumption? The assumption is, you know, young person, you can't really make a commitment that's going to be life-altering and life-changing. And I think the story of Mary speaks here. A woman who had been engaged, was in love with a man, but had maintained moral purity and excellence. And her life, her story is recorded for us by God. So that we can see that it is possible to live a life that stands out, to live a life of moral excellence that honors and glorifies God. It's one aspect of Mary's life that stands out as you read this. And I think the other thing that kind of stands out from this initial announcement, the Annunciation, is this. It is that God is not an elitist. He doesn't restrict himself to using highly capable, highly qualified people. Folks, listen. He wants to use each of us. And read through the story. This story is peppered with simple, average, basic people who have the favor of God put upon them. And what happens? Their lives are transformed. They become capable of doing things that they are incapable of doing in their own flesh. That's God. And when we strive for moral purity and excellence before God in character, whether young or old, God wants to use us. And that's the story of the life of Mary and Joseph that emerges here. She's a nobody from a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. But is chosen by God. Let that truth settle in. Okay, because what happened here? What happened here is this. God is entrusting the life of his son to a teenager. He's bringing his redemptive plan to pass through the person that you and I would not choose. But that's God. Encourage you this morning, think back. Think over your life. The bottom line is most of us here aren't highly qualified, well above average people. We're relatively speaking normal people. 
But God in His grace does what? He shows favor, a sovereign disposition to forgive and to show grace in response to repentance and faith. And He changes us. And He wants to use us. And He comes to Mary and says, Mary, you are highly favored. I want you to look at Mary's response to, the, response to this announcement because you've got to think about it. You're in this little town in the middle of nowhere, a town that's never mentioned in the Old Testament. It has no bearing. And in that town, God comes to one of his angelic ministers named Gabriel, an angel, who Hebrews 1.14 says they are ministering spirits sent forth to minister to us who are heirs of salvation. They come with messages from God. They come with encouragement from God. They have a service and function in our life. Mary's response to this divine encounter is what? Verse 29 says, Mary was, she was troubled. (laughs) This was not expected. Mary didn't say, you know, I've been waiting for you. Where have you been all these years? It's not that, no, it's, she is mystified. She is humbled. She is overwhelmed. Folks, when God knocks on the door of your heart, is that not, when he clearly comes, is that not the response? Mary's troubled because she's wondering, okay, this greeting, you know, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary's thinking, what do you want? What do you want from me? Okay, and so you find this just beautiful, humble response of Mary. God responds knowing how this would affect her. He says to her through Gabriel, Mary, don't be afraid. So this greatly troubled in verse 29 is interpreted to be some degree of fear, of awe, of shock that Mary's experiencing. He says, you have found favor with God. It's a repetition of what was said earlier. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son. And you were to give him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the most high God. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, it will never end. And Mary's thinking, do you know who you're talking to? That's not the way it works. It's unconventional. Mary had excellent character, but Mary in relationship to the work of God has honest questions here. I want you to notice what happens. Verse 34. Mary says, I don't think so. How can this be? She asked, since I am a virgin. And the the idea of the words here is simply this. I have never known a man intimately. So me being pregnant is outside of the realm of what is possible. Secondly, it is fundamentally awkward. (laughs) Why? Because I'm engaged, I'm betrothed. I'm promised to someone. So you find that God has put her in a situation that is risky and inconvenient. If you go back to Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, you find that Joseph had the same response. When the angel came and said to him, hey, uh, by the way, uh, the girl you're pledged to, engaged to, she's pregnant. What is Joseph's response? Oh, I'm good with that. That's fine. No, what does Joseph say? Here's what he says. He says to God, my desire is to put her away secretly so as to not disgrace her. Because what did he know? He knew that they had maintained moral purity in their relationship. And this announcement for Mary was one of the most awkward things. I, I would bet it's the most awkward thing that she has ever heard. So then she 
responds to God with the question, how? It's impossible. I have not been intimate with the man, therefore I can't be pregnant. Check your textbook. That's what you say to the angel. No. No. That can't be the case. Now I think something that is important right here is this. It's important for us to realize that when Zechariah, earlier in chapter 1, hearing that his wife Elizabeth, who was barren, that was the definition, she was beyond years of giving birth, and had been barren. Okay, when Zechariah hears that, what does he say? He says, God, no, no, it can't happen. What's Mary's question? Mary's question is, how can that happen? Okay, I, I know it can't happen through physical intimacy because that has not occurred. How can me being pregnant be true? God gives her an answer. Verse 35. The answer is this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. So what is God's answer to Mary? Mary, your pregnancy will not be a human thing. It will not be in the natural order of things. It won't be in the expected way. Folks, when God works, He is not restricted by the things that you and I are restricted by. He does not experience limitations. He has never wanted to do something that He can't do. He has never made a promise that He can't fulfill. He is a great and awesome God. And so the the answer that, that Gabriel gives to Mary is that this is a God thing. God will come upon you. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. And these are all words that if you go back into the Old Testament and do a little bit of comparative analysis, here's what you'll find. These are all the words that are talking about God coming and settling on a place to change things forever. What is God saying to Mary through Gabriel? I am going to rest on you in great grace and favor. And a miracle will take place in you. Something that will not be able to be explained away. You will be with child as a virgin. Now folks, does that mystify you? We live in a modern world, right, where things are done in scientific ways and we want proof. You know what God did to Mary here? He shoved her in the midst of a mystery. Here's a question sometimes we have. Is it okay to struggle with mysteries? Can I be a Christian and have things that are true about God that I don't understand? In other words, do I have to be able to answer all the questions, explain all the things? Do I have to be able to do that? No, that, it, it's the essence of faith. The essence of faith is there are things that God does and God has done in the past. Think about Noah and the ark. All right, how many of you don't read that story and say, that is amazing. I can't comprehend how that happened. And you think to yourself, is it okay to say that? Right? Is it okay for us to have genuine lack of understanding before a holy God? The answer is yes. Take it to God. God, I don't understand. That's Mary's response. She says, God, I, I, how? How could I possibly be pregnant? The answer from verse 36 is fascinating because God gives her an example of his miraculous power, doesn't he? And it's fascinating because as you study this to preach this, you think, what do I do with this? Verse 36, he says, even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. She who was said to be barren, and that's used here as a title, unable to bear children. What about her? 
She is in her sixth month. What's Mary's response? No. No. That can't be. That, that can't be. What is God giving her? He's giving her evidence. What does Mary do immediately after this encounter? You know what she does? She gets on her donkey and takes a ride to where Elizabeth lives to see if it's true. To see if what God had said, this miracle of her having a child, could actually happen. Verse 37 is the summation of God's answer through Gabriel to Mary. Or she has honest questions. God, how? How's it going to happen? How's this situation going to change? How are you going to bring this to bear? Here's what the angel says. For nothing is impossible with God. And the idea of this word is nothing is undoable. There is nothing, folks, that God can't do. And so he gives to us in his word what? Amazing promises that demand an act of God. How do they happen? By the power of God. He doesn't call you to do things and then say, you know what, good luck with that. Hope that works out. That's not what he does. With God, nothing is impossible. What, is the, what, does he, what does the angel say to her? Mary, the Lord is with you. That's the announcement. That's how he comes and greets her. God is with you. And the God who is with you is the God of the impossible. He is omnipotent. Omni, he is all. Potent. Powerful. It's the attribute of God that emerges most powerfully in the story of Christmas. When you get to the, the story of the crucifixion of Christ, the love of God begins to be manifested. so powerful, so clear. What's the miracle of God at the birth of Christ? It's a miracle. It's unexpected. can't happen. Why should we believe in God? Why should Mary say, oh, okay, God? Why should she? You know why? Because nothing is impossible with God. There is not a promise that God can't keep even when the promise defies rational thinking. God can do the things that He has promised. Our struggle. Our struggle is that we are decidedly finite and limited. There are many things that I want to do that I am incapable of doing. I live in a body of failing capacities. Okay, I've just been recently coming to grips with my knees not being what they used to be. I'm having a hard time yesterday putting lights on the tree because my shoulder, I had something to my rotator cuff back in the summer. I'm, I'm trying to put lights on the tree and I'm struggling. Okay, so it, it's natural that we would doubt and that we would worry and that we would have fears and concerns. We would see things as undoable. God says to Mary, this is a mystery. There is nothing undoable for me. Job says this in Job 42 and verse 2. He says, I, this is after he's gone through all of his trauma and he's seeking for an answer from God. And the answer from God is what? The answer is God himself, right? The answer is a God who flung the worlds into existence, who, who, who put the stars in their places permanently and they're trackable and measurable. They're predictable. The God who did that. And what is Job's response? Job's response in Job 42.2 is this, I know that you can do all things, and that, listen to this, and that no plan or purpose of yours can be thwarted. Wow. He's the creator, folks. He is God omnipotent. 
He is God without restrictions. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. And nothing is too hard for you. Do you see what's happening? There's a reflection on creation and there's a conclusion. The God who did that can handle any circumstance in my life. And so what, what, is, what does Gabriel do? He quotes to her from the Old Testament. Nothing is impossible with God. And that would echo in her mind. With the truth about the great God that she had heard read about in the synagogue gatherings. And she would be confirmed and affirmed and encouraged. Remember, he created all things. A man named Sharnock, a Puritan writer, said this. He said, man can't make a fly. I thought, oh, that's stupid. When I read that in this readings on omnipotence, God all power, he said, man can't make a fly. I started thinking about that. That like bothered me. But it's true. Folks, we make things that fly, Right? Just incredible technology and power and thinking and all those things. Do you realize this? Man, with all of those capacities, could not take raw materials and make a fly with the heart that beats. Man, God's done a little bit more than that. Right? Why do we doubt? Because there are so many simple things that we just, with all our technology and all our accomplishments, we can't do. But God can. When I was a kid, we used to sing a song at church. It was, I won't torture you, okay, so I won't sing it. But it was, it was these words, God can do anything, anything, anything. God can do anything but fail. Anything but fail. And what he is saying to Mary in this text is this, Mary, I am the God of the impossible. And here's the truth that Bishop Ryle concluded from, the, from, from an acknowledgement of the omnipotence of God. Here's what he said. He said, faith, our faith, never rests so calmly and peacefully as when it lays its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. Our faith, our faith never rests so calmly as when it rests its head on the pillow of God's omnipotence. And when we by faith say, God, these circumstances in my life, I can't handle. I'm going to lay my head down tonight and trust you. Because there's nothing God can't do. God's power makes the coming of Jesus and the good news possible. The birth of the Son of God in human flesh to live a perfect life, to prepare for death on a cross, is a miracle that comes about by the power of God. Can I ask you this question this morning? What impossible struggle, fear, sin, hidden bondage are you wrestling with that you believe God can't break? What is it that you fear? What is it that is holding you back from giving your life to God and trusting Him? You see, there's nothing impossible with God. We are creatures that tend to doubt. The Spirit of God has come to give us the gift of faith. I want you to look at Mary's response in verse 38. Mary's response is this. I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. May it be according to your word. Gabriel, what you just said, God, do that in me. Wow. Wow. 
Man, do we make things complicated. Right? Mary just acknowledged that God was omnipotent, that he could do the impossible, that there was no plan of his, no purpose of his, that could be thwarted because he can do all things. And what does she say? Lord, I am your servant. The word she uses is to say, I am amongst human beings, the lowliest of the low. Why? This woman was in touch with the fact that she lived in a town between towns. She lived on the perimeter of society. She didn't matter. But she had a God who could take her life, rescue it from insignificance, and make her a, a phenomenal example of incredible and great faith. Why does Mary respond in this way? I think the answer is this. I think Mary had a great love for God. You say, Tim, how do you know that? Why do you think that? Because of this. Mary had a plan for her life, didn't she? She was engaged. She was betrothed. Planning her her wedding. I don't know what all that would be about, but she had a plan for her life. This was devastating news to her. That would affect the rest of her life. If you go to Luke chapter 3 and verse 23. It talks about, it talks about Joseph. And, and here's what it says. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old. When he began his public ministry. He was the son. So it was thought. Of Joseph. Okay. He was the son. So it was thought. Of Joseph. Which means what? It means that the rest of Mary's life was affected by a decision to surrender her plans to God. The rest of her life. Living in a small town where everyone would think they knew the truth. But what did Mary have in her heart? She had the mystery. What did Joseph have in his heart? They had the mystery. They had the mystery of the understanding of the God who can do the impossible. One word could be written on Mary's resume. Available. Available. God, you come, you ask, I am available. I am willing. I am at your disposal. That was the response of Mary. Her faith in God's power led to a freedom to do God's will. You ever find yourself stuck knowing what God wants you to do and unable to do it? Because you lack faith. You lack trust in the power of God. You know He's asking you to do something and you just can't get off the dime. You can't see it happen. Why? You, you doubt the power of God. God comes into your life through His Word. What is He saying through Mary and Joseph's experience? He's saying, I can do the impossible. Trust me. And as you trust me, yield your life to me in full surrender. This is how the Apostle Paul describes worship in Romans 12 verse 1, isn't it? I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, by the favor of God, give yourselves to Him. It's the essence of worship. This is what we find Mary doing in this text. Loving God more than her personal plans and moving in this direction. I want you to ask you, ask you this question as we think about what I think is the real intention of this text. Does this miracle of the virgin birth matter? Okay, it's the impossible, it's the unthinkable, it's the awkward, it's all of those things. Does it matter? In other words, what is the import, what's the importance of the virgin birth of Christ for you and I today? What, what's the importance of this miracle that occurred in the life of Mary? A couple of thoughts 
Just glean these from the text. First of all, the virgin birth means this. It means that Jesus Christ is the direct fulfillment of Old Testament promises. You go back and read the book of Isaiah that is written 700 years before the coming of Christ. Chapter 7 and verse 14. Here's what the word of God says. It says, behold, a virgin will conceive while still being a virgin and bear a son and you will call his name Emmanuel, which means God in the midst. Okay, so what is this promise to Mary? This promise means that the virgin birth is the fulfillment of prophecy of God's word from 700 years prior to her life. And I think you could go back further. You can go back to the life of David, year 1000, when God says somebody's going to sit on your throne who will be forever. Then go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 3. When the seed of the woman is going to come to conquer sin. The virgin birth is the promise or the fulfillment of many promises from the Old Testament. Mary stands at such an amazing place. The virgin birth also means this. It means that Jesus is a king forever. Look at verse 27 of our text. It says, the angel Gabriel came to a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. Joseph is what? He is a descendant of David. If you go ahead into chapter 3 and verse 31, you find there that in the lineage of Joseph, going all the way back to Adam, who do you find in the middle? You find King David. This is a vital Old Testament connection to understanding why this text is not primarily about Mary. It is about a great God who is using a humble servant to do his will and his purposes. Verse 32 and verse through 33. And these, these are promises that would blow Mary's mind. He, your son, will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. Now, where does this connection to David come from? He ha- will have the legal right to the throne through the lineage that he receives through his adopted father, Joseph. Okay, and that's the connection. Joseph is in the line of David. Joseph is his legal adoptive father. And it's through that connection that Jesus Christ is tied into physically the line of David. And he is a king that verse 33 says will rule over a kingdom that will last forever. See, here's the problem in the Old Testament. King David was a great king. He had his mistakes. He had his flaws. But he was a great king. His death brought sorrow, frustration. And what did it bring? It brought hope and desire for what? A king like David who would live forever. Folks, that's the answer that's given here through Mary. He is a king forever in the line of David. The virgin birth also means this. It means that Jesus is God and man. Verse 31 says that Mary will give birth to a son. Verse 35 says, the angel answered and said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One, title for God in the Old Testament, to be born will be called the Son of God. Okay, if you study Scripture just a little bit, here's what you're going to find. That is the title of divinity. That is a title applied to God. Jesus is the Son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity who is birthed by the power of the Spirit. Now what do you find? You find a Trinitarian picture in this text. The Father coming. The Spirit overshadowing. Jesus being born. Who is He? He is holy and He is the Son of God. 
He is God in physical flesh. John 1.14 says this. The word will become flesh and live in the midst. God himself will take on human flesh for a very unique and special and important purpose. This is what we call the incarnation. And it's why when Jesus is named, given a title by Joseph, the title is, He is Emmanuel, which being translated is, God with us. The virgin birth also means this. It means that Jesus is sinless. He is not the offspring of Adam inheriting his sinfulness. He is the offspring of God, placed into the womb of the Virgin Mary, sinless Son of God. And this is so important that we understand this, that the one who hangs on the cross that offers his life to bear the price of our sin is not bearing his own sin, but is bearing ours. He is the sinless Son of God. And what that means then in relationship to the virgin birth finally is this. It means that in Jesus, we have a great Savior. We have the hope of forgiveness. So Gabriel directs that Mary, and she gives birth to her son in verse 31. You will be with child. You give birth to a son. Give him the name Jesus. The name means what? It's the Old Testament name Joshua. It's the name for Jesus is the Savior. He's the rescuer. This is what Matthew is saying in the Gospel of Matthew when he writes and says, call his name Jesus. Why? He will save his people from their sins. Now see, that's the glory of the virgin birth. The virgin birth is not saying that you need to be religious. You need to be a good person. The virgin birth is saying Jesus came to save sinners. He came to rescue us from the consequence of our moral failure. To transform and to change our lives forever. The question I would ask you this morning is this. Is he the savior and king of your life today? Is he the savior and king of your life today? Because what emerges from this text is this very simple thought. What counts with God is willingness, not credentials. Okay, so he takes a very simple person and accomplishes miraculous and amazing things through her willingness. He is not impressed with social class. He's not impressed with degrees. What captures the heart of God is a humble willingness in the heart of people that he chooses to use. It also means that it is possible, looking at her life, it is possible for us to maintain moral purity you see, Mary and Joseph had kept themselves pure. And what I just, I hope this presses in on your hearts a little bit this morning, that living a life that is morally above board, that honors God, is possible. And their example says that to us. But the other thing I think that it says is this. It says that God, whom we serve, can keep all of his promises. The God that we serve can keep all of his promises. There is nothing that can resist the saving power of God. Folks, you can read through the lineage of Jesus. Here's what you'll find. Not every person in the lineage of Jesus is like Mary and Joseph. There are sinners in the lineage of, of Jesus and Mary. And in fact, Mary will later say in chapter 1 of this text, I believe it's verse 46 or 47, here's what she says. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. That's what we were singing this morning. Magnify the Lord. Why? Mary is saying, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior, who is born 
that she understood that she needed a personal relationship with God. But here's the struggle the disciples had with this idea of forgiveness and heart change. If you move ahead in the Gospel of Luke to chapter, I believe it's chapter 18, they encounter a religious man who keeps the law of God, relatively speaking. That man fails to come to faith in Christ and the disciples ask a question. The question is this, if that guy, religious and, 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 and uh, you know, a man who's devout, if he can't come, who then can be saved? What is the response of Jesus? With man, this is impossible. But with God, what? All things are possible. Folks, it doesn't matter where you've come from today. It doesn't matter how dark your sin is today. God is able to forgive and to change your life. It doesn't matter who you are. If you have low credentials, a weak history, come from a smut, it doesn't matter. God is able to do abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. And my hope this morning would be that we would take this text that wrapped in the middle of it is the power of God, the omnipotence of God, a God who can do anything. And that we would go out into our world realizing there are people in our world that don't think they have a chance with God because they think they're too sinful. They think they're condemned. And the truth is, apart from the saving grace of God in Christ, they are. But through Jesus, what can God do? God can change their life. He can give them hope of change, hope of a future with God. Because one day in history, God became a man. God took on perfect human flesh, lived the life we couldn't live, and died the death that we should die. So that 1 Peter 3 becomes true. Christ died for our sins. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God so that he might bridge the gap that Matt talked about earlier between us and God a chasm that is built and created by our sinfulness folks what you need is a bridge Jesus Christ is the bridge that God by his miraculous power through the virgin birth built and in Jesus he says to you whosoever will let him come let him come folks it doesn't matter how dark the sin is come in Christ, there's hope of forgiveness. He can do the impossible and change your life. And if you know him, my encouragement to you this morning will be this. Surrender your heart to his awesome power and watch what God will do through your life. Get over self-pity. Get over discouragement. Get over doubt. Get over fear. Put on your resume, God, available, surrender to your purpose, even when it is awkward and difficult and hard and mysterious. I trust you. Let's bow our heads together.